0: I'm Jewish.
1: I'm so Jewish.
0: I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish. A
1: lot of people say, I'm Jewish. I'm proud of being Jewish. First thing I ask them is says, why?
0: I'm Jewish. Make something of it. Okay, we're back with our final segment with Rabbi Reinman. And I started off with a question about the mitzvahs, the rituals. What does he say to someone who thinks the rules are too constricting?
1: Ritual rituals are they're not constrictions. You know, would you say would you say that that um that to uh to buy your wife flowers for her birthday every year, would you say that that's a restriction? Would you say that means that, that you don't have the freedom to do what you want because you have a relationship with your wife and the relationship with your wife requires that you, that you talk to her every day. It requires that you sit down to have dinner with her. It requires that you buy her a gift at certain times. It requires that you compliment different things that she does. Would you say that that is restrictive? When you say that's called that you don't have the freedom, I mean, maybe some people would say that and that's why their marriages don't last. But if you want to conduct a relationship, there are certain rituals, certain practices that are expected from husband, wife to each other. And that is really what rituals are in Judaism. A person, a Jew is required to conduct a relationship with God. And how do you conduct a relationship with God? What do you do? Say, hi, God, you know, <laughs> and uh, see you next week. You know? What do you do? So when, when, when you put on this tefillin, you wrap it around your arm, and when you say the prayers, and when you say the words of praise, and when you ask God to make sure that you're going to be well, and that your wife is well, and your parents, and your children, and when you ask God to help you, that you should have, uh, make a good living, and when from time to time you, you uh, celebrate festivals. When, when Shabbos, when you stop working on Shabbos and say this day is consecrated to God, I don't have to work on this day, this day I'm going to spend with my family, and I'm going to sing songs, and I'm going to not do things that I do all week. This is all the way that we conduct our relationship with God. So you're saying that person, it, it, it restricts to freedom, again, it's not the freedom to do what you want. It's the freedom from the interference of God in your life. The freedom from having to conduct a relationship with God. It does It does interfere with that.
0: Okay, now we get into some of the nitty-gritty of halakha, which is Jewish law. And I ask him why different Jews have different views on the rituals.
1: There, 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 there are questions in halakha. There are questions of, uh, how long you're supposed to wait between uh, meat and milk if it's six hours or five and a half hours or five hours or three hours and there are different opinions in the halacha and there are different communities all over the world There are Fardim there are the German Jews there are the, uh, the uh, Eastern European Jews and each one had its own rabbis and they they, they ruled according to their opinion so over time you had ended up with having different customs based on the different halachic opinions. And as long as a person is following a valid halachic opinion, even if that's not the halachic opinion of my rabbi, I don't think that he's doing anything wrong, I think he's perfectly fine. The, you know, the halacha says, if, if, if this is what you rule, this is what you rule, they're both valid, because both of them fall within the parameters of halacha. There is there is flexibility. There's a lot of flexibility, a lot of room for originality and creativity. And if one person reaches this kind of conclusion, unless he's made a blunder, unless he just missed the boat, then 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 it's not valid. But if that's his subjective opinion, then that's a valid ruling, and you're entitled to follow it. And you should follow the ruling of your community. That's what we say. We say people people are reinforced by their community. So people that person who is of German-Jewish extraction. So for this person, for him to be strong, if he follows all the rules of the German-Jewish community, then he strongly identifies with it and makes him, it gives him security and stability. If he says, well, this thing I'll do like this, this thing I'll do like that, then he's just like a board floating on the ocean, so he's not stable. So that's why we say that you should follow the the ways of your community, even if I disagree, even if I feel that, uh, that, that this is the halacha, but you should not do that. You should do what your rabbi says. You should do what your family does. You should do what your neighbors do. That way, you'll be strong. What do you do about meat and milk? Six hours. I wait six hours. Sometimes I'll wait five and a half. Of course, the Rambam says about six hours. So some people say that means that it doesn't have to be quite six hours. So once you pass the five and a half hour mark, I usually don't do that unless it's like I'm under pressure for some reason. But uh, usually I'll just wait six hours. I can survive.
0: (laughs) Okay, now we turn to women. And one of the more strict laws, let's say, is that you're not allowed to listen to a woman's singing voice or you're not allowed to hear a woman's singing voice. Why?
1: A woman's face could be attractive, and a woman's voice could be attractive. A speaking voice, not even a singing voice. A woman has a beautiful speaking voice that could be attractive. So we, we, don't, we don't say that... Uh, no, the requirements of modesty require us to... Um, there's no end to it. And you could, you could do like the people do in the, in, in the Middle East. You wrap them in blankets and <laughs> you don't see them. That's not what the halacha requires. Um, the, custom, the custom in, in most uh, Orthodox communities is that men and women do not shake hands. And some people are offended by this. There was a story in New York, uh, maybe a year or two ago, about a big real estate deal between a Hasidic person and, and, uh, and a woman who was, I don't know if she was even Jewish. And when it came to the closing, she wanted to shake his hands. He said, I'll shake hands with women. And she got very upset and the whole deal fell through. It was written up in, in the New York Times. And it was, it was portrayed as something ridiculous. And first of all, I think that this man, if he had been more diplomatic, and if he had told her, instead of saying, I don't shake hands with women, he would have said, please don't be offended with my religious customs, and so forth, then it, you know, she would have dealt with it better. But if he said, I don't shake hands with women, it's, it's, not, it's not the way to do this. But what's wrong with shaking the hand of a woman? And, <coughs> when you shake a hand of a woman, and you touch flesh to flesh, That is an act of intimacy, a low-level act of intimacy. I think I saw a survey once that when a man shakes the hand of a woman, he holds it twice as long as when he shakes the hand of a man. Because it is something pleasurable, something enjoyable, it is a contact between the man and the woman. In fact, in certain places, in certain German-Jewish communities where they did shake the hands, they wore gloves. So, at least if you do shake hands, there's no flesh to flesh contact. And the idea is that, that, that acts of intimacy should only be done between husband and wife and not with a woman who is not your wife. That is an act of intimacy. Now, some people say maybe it is, it isn't, it's not tarakiba, it's not an act of intimacy. So, generally, we are, we, we are stricter in this than we say we should in most Orthodox communities. If you hug a woman that's an act of intimacy, that's out. Right? All these things. Modesty, the issue of modesty is very much that if a woman bears her flesh in front of a man, that is an act of intimacy with that man. And that's something which is forbidden. So we have to establish you know, the borderline, where is, what is considered an act of intimacy and what is not. So we really rely on the sages, on the oral law, that tell us that you have to cover the hair, you have to cover the leg until the knee, you have to cover the arm until the elbow. Anything beyond that, if you see, see that in a woman, it is true, it is attractive, it is nice, but it is not an act of intimacy. These are called the things which are normally, the komos the things, the places which are normally covered. If you uncover something which should be covered, that is considered an act of intimacy. If you leave your nose uncovered, that is not an act of intimacy. If somebody sees it and thinks it's a pretty nose, that is not considered an act of intimacy. And you know, it's not for us to decide that this is decided by the sages. They set down the ground rules of what to do. Now, you ask me about, about covering up completely. There is a Gemara that extremely modest women, the Gemara speaks about what is you know the, the, it's forbidden to carry something outside on Shabbos. You're not supposed to carry on Shabbos, but if something is is very small, very insignificant, it doesn't count. it has got to be something which has which has some kind of uh, value. A pencil. Uh, if you have like a, a little sliver of a toothpick in your pocket, you know you shouldn't do it. But that's not considered that that you carried something. A piece of lint. I mean, it's nothing, right? So, the Gemara spends a lot of time going through different articles and what, how much of that article is considered uh, something of value, something of significance. The Gemara speaks about eyeshadow, coal. You know, coal, K O H L, coal, the stuff that they put on, on the eyelids. So, this was, uh, you know, so the Gemara spe- how much coal do you have to carry on Shabbos for it to be considered that you, you really carried? So, the Gemara says, the amount that it takes to to make up one eye. So the Gemara says why? Because there were people, there were women that were extremely modest, and they used to cover up completely, and they only left one eye uncovered, so they should they should ha- they should see where they're going. They shouldn't fall down. So, so for this woman, so you see that even an extremely modest woman who covers herself up so much. I should only leave one eye open to see where she's going. She's got to put makeup on that eye. (laughs) I think this is. I always found the Gavara very, you know, very amusing.
0: Okay, staying in the nitty gritty here, I ask him why we're allowed to open a refrigerator on the Sabbath when the motor could go on, but we're not allowed to turn the hot water
1: faucet on. Okay, there, there is a rule in, in uh, Shabbos that if you, do something, if you do something and it has an unintended consequence you're not responsible for that but there's a corollary to this rule that if it's psikresha then you are responsible psikresha means you take a chicken and you cut off his head because you want the head but you don't intend it to die so that's not called unintended consequence because it's going to happen. If you cut off the head, it's going to die. Psychrashi, you chop off the head below, it's not, not going to die. So that is not considered an unintended consequence. That's considered an intended consequence. So when you when you open a refrigerator, you know you don't know that the motor is going to go on. So if it happens to go on, it was unintended. But when you turn on the hot water, and you take and you draw out hot water from your water heater, then it's inevitable that more water will come into the water heater and be cooked. So what you're doing is not considered an unintended consequence.
0: Many traditional women will cover their hair if they're married. So I ask him about the group who use wigs to serve as that hair covering, but often the wig is either exactly like their hair or more attractive than their hair. So the wig, also known as the Shaytol, how does he justify that?
1: I thought about three legal fictions. Selling chametz is one. Uh, the other one is a heterisca. That, that when you, when you uh, borrow money, you're not supposed to pay interest. But you can, you can create a heterisca, a certain document, that, uh, that will allow you to pay interest. Of course, it's structured as part of investment, part loan. It's a whole contraption. But basically, it's a loan but you can structure it in a certain way that you're allowed to pay the interest. So That also has been called the legal fiction. And the third one is the shaitl, which is considered by some people to be a legal fiction. So I don't really consider the shaitl as uh, belonging to this group, because the shaitl is just an illusion. And you know, as we spoke before, I don't think a woman has to make herself unattractive. A woman just should not, uh, should not bear those parts of her body which, are, uh, which uh, are covered in public. And the woman's natural hair is covered in public, and if she wears a sheitel on top of it, then the point of the sheitel is not to make the woman less attractive. The point of the shatel is to cover her, those parts of her body that are not to be exposed in public. So I don't think that that falls into the uh, group of the illegal fiction. But let's talk about, about um, lending, uh, you know, borrowing money at interest. Now, the, the, it's a mitzvah in the Torah to lend money. It's a mitzvah. If somebody comes to you and wants to borrow money, it's a mitzvah to lend them the money because you're doing a chesed with them. The person needs the money, and by lending him the money, you are helping him out. That's very important. And you should not take interest for that. In fact, the Chafetz Chaim says that that's the, that's the basis of the, of the prohibition against taking interest is that you should do chesed. Now, what happens if a, a, uh, a rich man has an opportunity to make an investment, to make an investment, um, needs $20,000, he can buy a stock that's just coming out, and it'll multiply tenfold in a matter of three months, and it's, but he just doesn't have the cash right now. So, he goes to a person who's, let's say, a teacher, and he's got uh, $20,000 in the bank, and he says, can you lend me $20,000, because I have an opportunity now. Yeah, so, he has to lend him the money, right? Now, is it a chesed for this person? Is, isn't it a lower level of chesed for this person to lend the money to a rich man to go make a lot of money and I'm taking my little nest egg that I have and giving to the rich man They should make a lot of money. There is a certain chesed in that, but it's not a very high level of chesed. Now, let's do it the other way around. A rich man has got a ton of money, a ton of money and a poor man is marrying off a child. He doesn't have any money. He comes to the rich man and he wants to borrow twenty thousand dollars. It's a great chesed for this rich man to give him the money. Now, if this if this rich man were to charge interest to the poor man who's making a wedding for twenty thousand dollars, which means nothing to him, we buy seventeen thousand dollars suits, so it means nothing to him, and he charges the man interest, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. If this poor te- this teacher who's got twenty thousand dollars nest egg and is lending twenty thousand dollars to to a rich man who's going to turn that into $200,000 over the next six months, and he does charge him interest, it's not outrageous. So there there, there are certain points, there are certain outside parameters where where there's something that you should do and something you shouldn't do. But in the middle, should he lend the money to the rich man? Should he, This, this teacher? Is it important for him? Is this part of the mitzvah? So that is the question. In this whole gray area, the Torah says, it's up to you. If, there is, if you can construct a legal fiction, if you can construct a risk it doesn't mean that you found a loophole that God didn't know about. You don't fool God. You say, okay, I'm going to do that, and that's what and I'm going to fool God. That's how it is in, in, in the law. Because the law is made by people. So if you all the laws overlap and if your lawyer is very smart, he'll find that little crack and he'll take you right through it. That's not how it is with God. If you believe that the Torah is divine, if you believe that the law comes from God, then there are no loopholes that he missed. So if the loophole is there, it's there. But it's up to you to decide if you want to use it. If you want to be super, super chesed person and I'm going to give it to the rich man I don't care and I'll I'll take it out of my my money market account let him make his money, great if you want want to charge, also okay but if if that rich man will lend money to a poor man to make a wedding and he'll charge him interest with a heteriska, I believe he will answer for it he will answer for it because that is an abuse but the device is there to be used properly Now, if a person has has, um, a piece of bread in his his freezer, and comes to Pesach, and he says, you know what? I'm going to sell it to a guy. Why, Why don't you burn it? It's a piece of bread. Why do you burn it? You're supposed to burn your bread. Burn the bread. Why are you selling that piece of bread to a guy? Well, let's say a person has a grocery store. Should he burn down his grocery store? So we know that the person with a piece of bread really should burn it. And the person who has a grocery store really shouldn't burn it, He should sell it, he shouldn't burn it. But what if a person has like $200 worth of liquor? What should he do with it? Should he get rid of it? Or should he sell it? So this is for you to decide. You, have, you can sell your chametz. If, if you have a grocery store, you're crazy for not selling it. If you have a piece of bread, you're crazy for selling it. Anywhere in the middle, it's for you to decide where you are. It's for you to decide. It's there. The device is there to be used. And if you abuse it, I think, I think, you know, the person who sells that piece of bread, I think when it comes to the heavenly court, God will say, what did you have to do that for? But if a person sells, uh, you know, his, his blue label Johnny Walker and his Chivas, and they will say, all right, this is it, good. <laughs>
0: now we turn to the topic of the sabbath or shabbat or shabbos and for the jews it starts friday night and continues through saturday night and it comes with a lot of restrictions things you are not allowed to do and a lot of things you are supposed to do however the observant jews i've spoken to always refer to it as a gift does he agree with that is it a gift
1: it is a wonderful gift shabbos is a wonderful gift shabbos is a gift that you know uh, let me, um, The story with the Baradet Sheva Rebbe, that uh, the, the famous Baradet Sheva Rebbe, he always used to be the advocate for the Jewish people of God. Anything that happened, you say, God, look how great the Jewish people are, this and this and this, look, no matter. And he was always there saying the praises of the Jewish people to God. So one time on, on Pesach, the first night of Pesach, in the middle of the night, he comes he runs out, he says, calls all the people, all of you get together, well, if you come, come into the town square. And they all came, and he says, I want everybody to bring me, he said, I think Bredicev I think was under the Turkish government at that time, and he said, I want you to bring me a certain type of contraband that the Turks had forbidden. And they all said, what do you mean, bring it to you? It's, we we, we, we could get shot if we, if we had something. We would all to have it. He says, I don't care what you say, I want everything. They argued back and forth, and little by little you know, all, this, all of it started coming out and they all brought it to the square, the rabbi said, I have to do it. Then he, called, then he thought of another kind of contraband, and he mentioned that, and you know, oh, this is even worse. And, you know, after a little while, another little pile of contraband. And I said, okay, I want you to bring all the chametz that you have in your house. And there was nothing. Nobody had any chametz in the house. So he says, so he turns to, to God, looks up to him and he says, look, you have the Turkish army and they're here and they have people with, with weapons all around and, if, and they could take somebody and they catch him with this. He's finished. And they can't stop the people from having the stuff. What do you have here? you have any army here? you have anything? And you say in the Torah, no chametz? There is no chametz. Yeah. Look how great the Jewish people are. This was his advocacy to God. So, I, I, I think it's a beautiful story. But the Torah, when the Torah gives a, a prohibition, it's a wall. The Torah says don't, then it's a wall if you're observant. You know, we're talking about the times when Jews were all observant, and everybody you know believed in and lived by the Torah. So when the Torah says, this you don't do, then do it. So Shabbos, all these prohibitions, they, they, they hem in your life on Shabbos. You can't do this, you can't go there, you can't do that. But at the same time, all these prohibitions are like, uh, the, these walls are made of the word of God. So you're living, so to speak, in a structure, and you're surrounded by God's word. And in that place, it's a very holy place. So when you step into Shabbos, you are, and and, and you observe it properly, not only are you in the walls, but in those walls, you spend time with your family, and you have good food, and you sing beautiful songs, and you rest, and you take a walk, and you learn a little Torah. It's, It's something which is spectacular. And people that, 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 experience a Shabbos in an observant home, are almost invariably very moved and very impressed by it. Now, I don't think, and and they feel it, they feel it, their soul feels it, I don't think that if these same people had decided that on Tuesday they're going to do the same thing as on Shabbos, Tuesday we'll do the same thing. We're all gonna sit down, we're gonna eat together, we're gonna sing songs, we're not gonna answer the phone, we're not gonna go in the car. It wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be the same because it would just be, it, you, wouldn't be you wouldn't be living within the word of God. So it wouldn't be Shabbos. It would just be a very poor imitation of Shabbos. I think if you invited somebody to your home on that Tuesday, I don't think that he would come away with the same feeling as on Shabbos. So Shabbos is a tremendous gift. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a island in time, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, and that's why it's so powerful.
0: There was a time when everybody was, was observant? I think people were gonna, will object to
1: that. There was a time, yes. Whoa. There was a time going back, let's say, two, three hundred years ago. I mean, you can't say everybody was observant. There were people that, that used to go out to the forest on Shabbos and smoke. You know, you can't say that, but, you know, it wasn't normative. The communities were all observant. From the time of the exile, from the time of the khurban, now there were, were Karaite movements who, who did not accept the oral law, and they, they had very literal interpretation of the written law. So, okay, after, but let's say, but they, they petered out about, uh, you know, 800. So let's say the a 1,000 years. For a 1,000 years before the birth of reform, everybody was observed. Except for those that weren't. <laughs> there, was no, there was no institutional non-observance. How's that?
0: Now, showing that no topic is off limits, we now talk about the homosexual in Judaism. And what is a homosexual supposed to do? if they want to be a traditional Jew.
1: When God says that you should not have homosexual relations, He's obviously talking to people that have the inclination to have homosexual relations. So obviously, God knows that there are people in the world that would be inclined in that direction, and He says, don't do it. So it's not as if uh, a surprise to God that in our generation we have gay people. God knew this. So, what's the issue? The issue is, um, what are gay people supposed to do? I mean, it's not, it's not forbidden to be gay. It's forbidden, it's forbidden to have homosexual relations. If a person is gay, then, I'm I should I get into this? I have, I have my own thought on this. Um, gay people say that they were born gay and that uh, from as long as they remember they were always gay. I'm not convinced that this is true. Now I'm not saying that you could take people that are gay and you could uh, turn them therapy. maybe you could, probably could some people, maybe some people you can't. And I'm not going to get into that, but I'm saying something else that you find that people that are heterosexual, they go to prison, they will turn to homosexual relations. In certain English boarding schools, it's well known that there was homosexual activity because people have, uh, people have sexual drives and if they're frustrated in one direction, then they channel them in other directions. If people do not have Uh, you know, uh, heterosexual relations uh, uh, accessible to them, then they will channel it to homosexual. Um, What happens afterwards when they come out of prison? Can they go back to being heterosexual? Sometimes yes, and sometimes not. And again, get back to the question, can they be uh, treated and helped? And yes, maybe yes, maybe no. I really don't have an opinion on that. Uh, But I think that in today's culture, there was a time when people enjoyed childhood. They enjoyed the innocence of childhood. People grew up and they were not exposed to sexual issues and sexual messages. They were children. They played potsy, they played marbles. They didn't have anything. They weren't even aware of sexuality until their you know, pubescent years. They weren't even aware of it that was very, very healthy. These children, they were able to grow up and to mature and without having to deal with sexuality. It's not that way today. Today you'll have sitcoms on television where seven or eight-year-old kids will come in and, and make jokes with sexual innuendo. Today, children are taught sex education in second and third grade. Wherever they go, all the, 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 everything, everything, it's all around them. The images, the movies, the, the billboards, everything, it's so powerful in today's culture, which is something which did not happen in earlier cultures. So I think that that for certain children, depending on their own psychological makeup and depending on 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 their home situations, that they may find in those years, the formative years, the Sexual pressure so powerful and so strong that they may feel inadequate they feel uh, Will I be able to measure up to this goddess? You know me, you know They will not and they're little children. They don't have any kind of you know equipment to deal with this and I think that in such cases uh, some of them may channel their sexuality in a more comfortable direction, which is to their own sex. The opposite sex is too frightening and too intimidating, so subconsciously they will channel in a safer direction, which is not as intimidating. This is from the culture. There may be other factors that cause people to channel to the safer direction. Maybe people have problems with an overbearing mother or whatever, you know, different kind of psychological situations that may make people feel inadequate sexually, and then they would respond by channeling in a more comfortable direction. So these people, from the earliest awareness of their sexuality, true, they feel that they are gay, but I'm not convinced, and I really don't think, that they were born that way. I think that that is normal. For a person to be heterosexual, and I think that the people that are homosexual have come that way through uh, factors in their environment, in their situation, which have contributed to their becoming through no fault of their own. I say they've chosen it. I say they had any, they were able to control it. But that's what happened. I think they're victims. I think that things happen without their will and without their control that they become homosexuals. Now. Because they're victims, is not a reason to suspend the law of the Torah. The Torah says that homosexual relations are forbidden. Now, because they went through a situation where 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 they would turn and they became homosexual, it doesn't change the law. So, I don't condemn these people. I don't judge these people. I feel sorry for them. I feel compassion for them. But I'm not going to validate their 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 inclinations and say that their lifestyle is an acceptable lifestyle if the Torah says it is not. What should they do? I think I think it's a terrible thing and I think they should each one of these people, if they're Jewish, should go to their own personal rabbi that they feel very close to and they should seek counseling of how to deal with it. I don't have answers.
0: We continue talking about homosexuality and whether or not a person was born gay or not, and Rabbi Ryman had an interesting notion.
1: No, I have proof. I have a proof that, that uh, homosexuality is not uh, inborn. Because um, evolutionary biology, all these, you know, these people, these uh, you know, liberal sexual people, and not that, not that I'm not liberal, but I'm saying the people that have these attitudes, um, they, they all believe in Darwinism and the survival of the fittest. What is the fittest? What is considered the fittest? The one who can run the fastest? The one who can bench press the most? What is considered the fittest? So scientists today are generally agreed that the fittest are those that are most capable of transmitting their genes to the next generation. That is the definition of the fittest. So therefore, it seems to me, that homosexuals are the least fit. They're the least likely to transmit their, uh, I'm not saying that they can't do it, but as far as likelihood of transmitting their, their genes to the next generation, they are the least likely. So therefore, natural selection should have eliminated homosexuals from the human race over the last few thousand years. So how can we have homosexuals? So I think that's a proof that homosexuality is a result of external factors. Therefore, would not be eliminated by evolution.
0: But you also don't believe in evolution.
1: I believe in evolution. I believe that 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 that, that organisms evolve. I believe that people evolve, and I think that uh, I just don't believe in random evolution. I believe that God controls evolution. You know, I, the uh, there's there's a Gemara in Shabbos that says that somebody came to Hillel and asked him, "How come?" how come the people in Babylon have round eyes? So he told them because it's very sandy and the round eyes, they're able to close them better, so they won't get any sand in the eyes. And how come the people in, uh, in Africa and in certain places have, have very wide feet? Of course, it's, because it's swamp, swampland, so it's easier for them to walk in swampland if they have wide feet. So we see, you know, in the, in the Gemara, we see adaptation to environmental factors, which is, that's what evolution is about. So people do evolve and organisms do evolve and do change to adapt. I just don't think that it happens at random. I think that God controls evolution, that's all. I think that, that, that nature is a perfectly engineered vehicle and uh, Darwin is believed that it's just rolling down the hill by itself, banging into the tree, banging into the boulder, you know? And, and I believe that God is behind the wheel and he's steering it down the hill. We now
0: discuss the temple and whether it's important to pray for the rebuilding of a third temple and return to all of the rituals, such as the sacrificing of animals and all that.
1: Is the presence of God, the presence of the divine presence among the Jewish people. Um, God is everywhere, but the divine presence is only in certain places. Certain places are extremely holy. They're like a window between the two dimensions, between this world and the next world. And at that particular point, that is the point of greatest holiness. That is the point of the divine presence. That was the temple. And we don't have that. And that's what we that's what we pray for, for the return of the temple. The form that the sacrifices will take, you know, there are different opinions of uh, what's going to be. But the sacrifices are not barbaric uh, customs, but sacrifices were were very elevating spiritual experiences. A person did a sin. He brought, a, you know, he brought a, uh, an animal to, uh, a, to, to bed, to temple, and he sacrificed it, and he said, really, I deserve to be sacrificed for what I did, but please accept this in my place. It's not the pagan idea of giving a gift to the gods.
0: We now turn back to the topic of Shabbat, and one of the specific prohibitions is turning a light switch on. So I ask him, is it better to sit in the dark for the Sabbath or turn the light switch on? Why or why not?
1: If it's better to sit in the dark to flip on the light, flipping on the light is a, prob- is, is a, is, is a violation of Shabbos. It's a violation of Shabbos. Now, if, you, if you, there are people that will, you know, what's if you're on the road? You're on the road and it's coming Shabbos and you're stuck in traffic. And, uh, and uh, you know, what are you going to do? You're supposed to pull the car onto the shoulder, turn it off, Put all these things away and sit there. You can, if you can walk somewhere to find something to eat, fine. Otherwise you sit there till after the Shabbos. Shabbos is inviolate. You don't do it. You can't make a decision. That's what the conservatives did. They said, you know, it's better to drive to shul on Shabbos than not to go to shul. You can't, that's not valid. And not only is it not valid, it was counterproductive. Because by allowing people to drive to Shul and Shabbos, they contributed to the disintegration of Jewish neighborhoods. Because until then, the people, they all lived together. So that was a big thing. But now you don't have to live in a Jewish neighborhood. You can live anywhere. So that, you know, next thing you know, all your neighbors are non-Jewish and the, you know, your son wants to marry the girl next door who's Irish. And all this is because of driving to Shul and Shabbos. So you can't play God. You can't decide what to do what not to do. Follow the rules.
0: Okay, I believe this is the last question, and it's about whether women can go to work, or are they required to stay home and raise children?
1: Yeah, if, if a woman wants to, if a woman wants to, she can go to work, and she could have a career, and she could not have children. It's a choice. She's not obligated to have children. The question is, why? The question is, if the woman is so critical in bringing up Jewish children, why isn't she obligated to have Jewish children just as the husband is obligated to have Jewish children? Puravu is a mitzvah on the husband, but not on the wife. I could just tell, I I could just tell you what I think. Um, in the Torah, before a thousand years ago, a man could have more than one wife. There's polygamy in the Torah. Torah allows for polygamy. A thousand years ago, the rabbi in uh, France said that you're not allowed to, not because marriage is not allowed for polygamy, he just forbid people to, forbid people to uh, have more than one wife. But basically, according to the Torah, you can't have more than one wife. So if a person gets married, and he has a very nice loving relationship with his wife, and they're very close, and they're very, you know, and uh, they have a great, a great marriage. And they have no children. And he has a mitzvah to have children. So what does he do? Takes another wife. So he has children from the other wife. But a woman, a woman cannot marry more than one man. A man can marry more than one woman, but a woman cannot have more than one husband. So if a woman got married, and, and she has a husband, and they have a wonderful marriage, they're very happy together, and they have no children. So what is the woman supposed to do? If she'd be commanded to have children, she would have to get a divorce. And I think that the Torah does not want to force her into a divorce. Whereas the husband has options. So the husband has a mitzvah to have children. If the husband has a mitzvah to have children, then the wife will have the children. So, practically speaking, the children will be born. But who is given the commandment? I think if they gave the commandment to the woman, sometimes it would put her in a very, very difficult position.
0: But how come today we don't have divorce for men who need to have kids? Because the...
1: it's a, some people do that. Some people don't have children. Will say, you know? They wait ten years. There's a custom among some people that you wait ten years. If you have children, then you get divorced. And in the Torah, the way the Torah is constructed, the husband has the option of taking another wife. He doesn't have to give up the marriage. Okay, let's go. So I am Jewish. <laughs> I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish. I am Jewish. I'm Jewish. Ya Evrayu. Yo soy judeo je suis Juif. Ani Yehudi. I am Jewish. I am Jewish.
0: So your languages were what?
1: What I said, I said French, Spanish, and Russian, Hebrew. Ich bin Yes. It's That's
0: Yiddish.
1: Ich bin What else? Arabic? Uh, Arabic. Yahud. (laughs) I don't speak Arabic yet.
0: I'd like to thank Rabbi Reinman for his time and his insights and his wisdom and his good humor. We had an enjoyable visit. In fact, we met twice. Two very long visits, and I appreciate it. I encourage you to go out and buy his book, One People, Two Worlds. It was very influential for me to see the different views of the Torah between Reform and Orthodox. And if you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe so you'll be notified each time a new interview is uploaded. And I'd like to welcome a new sponsor, PassoverGame.com. That's (laughs) PassoverGame.com.
1: Hot as hell, Jay.